Okay, this is the podcast for week 11. Week 11 also begins our third and final kind of unit or topic within the politics and philosophy of work. And that is the unit looking at some of the trends that are shaping work in the late 20th and early 21st century, the future of work, beginning with two weeks spent on the question of automation. This week with James Boggs and next week with Aaron Bedinoff and Jason Smith. So um, I want to say a little bit about the background of uh, James Boggs and this particular writing before we get into it. Uh, the first thing I want to say is that for this week, I have put on Brightspace a PDF of an entire uh, very long collection of many writings of James Boggs. We are only reading a part of that. We're reading the uh, part referred to as the American Revolution, pages from a Negro worker's notebook, which begins on page 83 and runs like page 146. That's the only part you need uh, if you're going to print it out or whatever. I always just want to say that because when I put a whole long book on, I'm always wary that someone's going to just download it and hit print. In this case, you'll be printing 300 some pages of a book. Anyways. Okay, so uh, James Boggs was born in Alabama in 1919. Uh, and like a lot of people, he migrated north uh, uh, from the south uh, to find work at Chrysler and worked for Chrysler from 1940 until 1968. During that time, he was also involved in the uh, left-wing uh, uh, political and um, intellectual group correspondences. Uh, he was also very involved in the civil rights movement and then what became the Black Power movement during that same time. And he died in 1993. So, um, you know, starting with the first thing, it's worth pointing out that of the various philosophers and theorists of work we've read so far this semester, uh, Boggs is the first one who can claim that he's spent a lot of time working in a factory, not just observing or writing about a factory, but actually spending time there. And as, as, he, as he says throughout uh, the American Revolution, he worked in a factory during a fairly unique time in the sense that uh, it was during World War II and during World War II, um, there was a, an agreement uh, on the part of organized labor to not allow for any strikes in order to keep product, productivity uh, going uh, unimpeded. Um, this did not mean, however, that there were not strikes. There were what Boggs refers to as wildcat strikes during this period, which are strikes that are not approved or organized by the labor organization by the union, but undertaken on by the workers themselves. Um, and often these strikes were about uh, things, not just the things like pay, but about working conditions overall. Um, and after World War II, as Boggs reflects, um, the labor movement in the U.S. became more and more a part of the Democratic Party, became more and more in part of uh, the capitalist structure, and uh, to some extent became 
less and less of a vehicle for uh, uh, addressing the issues and concerns of workers. So the split that um, that Boggs reflects on, as he says in the chapter on the challenge of automation, sort of talking about a kind of split between two groups of of workers, a split within class struggle, not just the struggle of workers against uh, capitalists, but a struggle between different segments of the workers, as he says, the division is now between two groupings. On one side are the brown noses, stooges, and workers who are only looking out for themselves, those who are complacent because of the fringe benefits they assume they have won through the union, particularly those near to retirement, and those who revolt but are afraid of the union bureaucracy or of being fired and then forgotten or branded as nuisances and troublemakers. On the other side are those who emphasize issues, who raise a cry about rights, who call upon workers to make decisions on principles and issues. Among the latter are the unemployed who picketed the union for agreeing for, to overtime work and continue to picket the plants against overtime work, even at the risk of being considered nuisances and troublemakers by those inside the shop, showing that the only ones who are seriously concerned about unemployment today are the unemployed themselves, right? So the unemployed workers who picketed against overtime, right? Overtime, which, you know, uh, was a benefit to those who had jobs. They could, they could make a living based upon overtime. And as Boggs talks about, overtime was kind of fundamental in transforming the condition of the working class, making it possible for them to be able to afford the sort of things that would define a life of comfort, like cars and televisions and so on. But um, but overtime would also uh, exclude people from work, exclude the unemployed from work. And so to be against overtime is to favor solidarity against uh, uh, solidarity in terms of all workers against an individual advantage. But the the real transformation. So you know, as 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 Boggs talks about, you know, the the idea of the working class as something unified is something very much put into question. And also with that, the idea of the working class as uh, as Marxists would claim a kind of revolutionary subject, right? The proletariat who has nothing to lose with their chains are going to overthrow capitalism. That was the old. Marxist prediction. And to some extent, Boggs argues against this, but he argues against this in a way that I think is very faithful to Marx's own method, which is to examine the historical transformations of capitalism and from there begin to diagnose and grasp what are the political possibilities uh, that emerge from it. And the big transformation that to some extent is at the center of Boggs's discussion is automation. And as he says, uh, and this is in uh, chapter two on the challenge of automation as well. I'm going to read this passage at length because I think it, it, it shows to what extent uh, Boggs takes seriously the, the world changing nature of automation as he understands it. As Boggs writes, automation replaces men. This, of course, is nothing new. What is new is that now, unlike most earlier periods, the displaced men have nowhere to go. 
the farmers displaced by mechanization of the farms in the 20s could go to the cities and man the assembly lines. As for the work animals like the mule, they could just stop growing them. But automation displaces people, and you don't just stop growing people even when they've been made expendable by the system. Under Stalin, the kulaks and all those who didn't go along with the collectivization of agriculture were just killed off. Even then, if they'd been ready to go along, Stalin could have used them. But in the United States, with automation coming in, when industry has already reached the point that it can supply consumer demand, the question of what to do with the surplus people or the expendables of automation become more and more critical every day. Now that passage has a lot in it, and I want to talk about it briefly. I mean, first, uh, to some extent, uh, Boggs is talking about his own experience or the experience of the generation he's part of, right? Moving from Alabama, from an agricultural area to industry, displaced from the farms and moving into the factories, right? So in previous technological changes, there was always someplace else to go. Now, Boggs is arguing there's really no place left to go. And the, the two uh, kind of analogies he makes in that, in that passage or examples he uses, the one being the mule, right? When you don't need mules anymore, that's not really a problem. You just stop breeding mules. But that's not really a solution when it comes to, to human beings. The human beings are going to go on existing and reproducing so you have this kind of surplus population. And the second is, and it's also quite striking, is the, the invocation of Stalin and the invocation of sort of mass death. I mean, it's the extent to which uh, Boggs sees the idea that, that, that American society is increasingly producing utterly expendable or surplus populations is, is, is very striking. And uh, as he says, there are multiple ways in which uh, society has tried to deal with this surplus of product, productive capacity and surplus of people. As he mentions, uh, one solution is, and this is on chapter four on the outsiders, um, as he says, kind of introducing a new aspect of, of alienation. Uh, no one understands better than a worker the humiliation and sense of personal degradation that is involved when some big shot is coming through the shop and the superintendent tells him to look busy in order to preserve, prove that there is useful work going on. That is what our whole society is like today. By all kinds of gimmicks, including war work, which may end up by killing off for those who are jobs being created, and a host of government agencies set up to study the problems of full employment, the American government is now trying to make work when we were already on the threshold of a workless society. All right, so there's this, a kind of alienation or a degradation caught up in the in these in this demand to look busy even when there's no longer work to be done. Uh, the other thing that Boggs mentions in that passage is war work, as he points out, uh, you know, one other solution besides displacing workers into new industries, one other solution to excess productive capacity in in society has been war itself, right? War um, takes care of excess people by killing them off, sending them off to be killed. It takes care of excess, 
excessive productive capacity because as Boggs points out, it pretty much is, takes that capacity and blows it up or sinks it to the bottom of the ocean, right? Um, but that possibility has also been radically changed in the middle of the 20th century with the invention of the atom bomb and with the prospect that there's not going to be another large scale war like World War One or World War Two, which is going to uh, decimate an entire surplus population and uh, decimate an entire surplus productive capacity. So to some extent, the possibility of war as a solution is also being uh, radically curtailed at the time that Boggs is writing. Um, so uh, the, the possibilities, and as he points out, you know, part of what the existing union organizations are really trying to do at this point is not so much address this question of automation. They are increasingly trying to address it only for those who already have jobs in seniority and so on and so forth. So there's a split, as he already mentioned, between the working class, between those who already uh, have a, a stake in the system of work and those who are kind of excluded or what uh, Boggs refers to as the outsiders. As he says um, uh, in that chapter, whereas the old workers used to hope they could pit their bodies against iron and outlast the iron, this new generation of workless people knows that even their brains are being outwitted by the iron brains of automation and cybernation. To tell these people that they must work to earn their living is like telling a man in the big city that he should hunt big game for the meat on his table. Um, so this means the new generation, the outsiders, the workless people now have to turn their thoughts away from trying to outwit the machines and instead toward the organization and reorganization of society and of human relations inside society. The revolution, which is within these people, ought to be a revolution of their minds and hearts directed not towards increasing production, but toward the management and distribution of things and toward the control of relations among people, tasks which up to now have been left to chance or in the hands of the elite. And as he goes on to say, you know, it is really only these outsiders uh, that can properly address the problem. As he says, the workless society is something that can only be brought about by the actions and forces outside the work process. So in some sense, rather than see the working class, the proletarian as the revolutionary subject who have nothing to lose but their chains, who through their alienation and exploitation by capital will eventually seize and transform capital for for Boggs, those people are, the working class, to the extent that it still exists, if it still exists, those people who are still in the factories are too attached to work itself. Um, they're unable to uh, uh, break away from work. As he says, there are some, among the, some people among the older generation who recognize this is the threat of promise contained in automation, threat of creating a whole new society. But most of them are afraid to face the reality and continue to hope that the old house can still be patched up. 
You can still find new jobs, create new jobs, etc. in new industries. The outsiders, in contrast, owe no allegiance to any system, but only to themselves. Being workless, they're also stateless. They have grown up like a colonial people who no longer feel any allegiance to the old imperial power and are each day searching for new means to overthrow it. Um, and that becomes, the outsiders become the new uh, revolutionary subject. But I want to talk about this the intersection that, that, that Boggs returns to several times of the relationship between class, race, and nation. Uh, and this comes up when he discusses uh, in the chapter Rebel with a Cause, the history of the U.S. in terms of slavery. Um, as he says in that chapter, the Negro question in the United States has therefore never been purely a question of race, nor is it purely a question of race today. Class, race, and nation are all involved. The American nation has become the giant of industry that, that it is today on the backs of Negroes. The working class has from the very beginning been divided. The white workers were an aristocracy, which benefited first and always from the exploitation of the Negroes and in between by the exploitation of each new wave of immigrants. Here I think uh, Boggs, for, for reference, is thinking a lot about uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's book Black Reconstruction, or at least what he's saying is very much in line with that, as he goes on to say, um, because what happened at the end of the Civil War, um, uh, I mean, there was a brief period, this is what Du Bois writes about, Black Reconstruction, a brief period in which attempts were made to, to transform the conditions of the freed former slaves, but by and large, that didn't last very long, and they were restored to um, serfdom, as he says. As he says on the bottom of that same page, oh, sorry, this is on my pages, you don't have the same pages, but in that same chapter, when the Civil War ended, uh, with the Negroes being returned to serfdom, it was the first major defeat of the class struggle in the United States. From that time on, uh, Americans included the radicals among them, have regarded the Negro question as a race question. But before the Civil War, Negro struggles were called rebellions and revolts. But after the Civil War and the formal emancipation of the Negroes, any violent action by Negroes was just called a race riot, even when these actions were based on economic grounds, such as jobs, housing, or prices. Right. So go back to what he says, Right, that class, race, and nation are always involved. Class, race, and nation were always involved in the Civil War because the Civil War, uh, uh, in terms of slavery, was about race, the racial status of, of, status of uh, blacks and whites in the United States. It was about class because slaves were a, a class of hyper-exploited people from which, as, as uh, Boggs argues, the white working class, to some extent, benefited from that, benefited from it both materially in the sense that uh, it was slavery that, that provided the cotton that, that fueled the factories of the North um, and benefited from the cheap cost of, of, of cotton and silver. But they also benefited symbolically in the sense that, uh, you know, this is what people talk about when they talk about the so-called wages of whiteness, that one of the other ways you benefit as a white worker from slavery is that you get to feel that you are at least not a slave and you're standing in society 
is uh, above the lowest rung of society. Um, so the Civil War was about race. It was also about nation. Uh, uh, and to some extent, you know, this is Boggs's discussion of the real problem is that post-Civil War, uh, we kind of immediately forgot about the intertwinings of race and class and began to think of the situation of African-Americans or what Boggs refers to in the language of his time, Negroes, as a purely racial problem and not see the connection between race and class. In the same way we don't see this connection between race and class. I mean, I think when, when Boggs talks about outsiders, you know, it's important to point out that, um, that, that to some extent, those outsiders um, are often the displaced former workers of, of industrial cities who end up becoming the inner city and are no longer viewed and their and their protests and their 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 struggles against their condition are now viewed in purely racial terms right so that uh when we lo lose sight of the interconnection between race class and nation we lose sight of what is really going on with problems uh in in society um and this comes up most striking in i think one of the uh uh, most relevant uh, and important passages from the entire uh, book, and that is the passage about the uh, in, in the chapter on the American Revolution, where Boggs writes as follows: Stop an American and begin to make some serious criticisms of our society. In nine times out of ten, his final defense will be, "But this is the freest and finest country in the world." When you probe into what he means by this, it turns out that what he really is talking about is the material goods that he can acquire in exchange for his birthright of political freedom. That is, he is free to have an automobile, a TV, a hi-fi, and all kinds of food, clothing, and drink, as long as he doesn't offend anybody he works for or anybody in an official capacity, and as long as he doesn't challenge the accepted pattern of racial, economic, and political relations inside the country or its foreign policy outside. On these questions, most Americans absolve themselves from any responsibility by saying that all that is politics and I'm not interested in politics. What they really mean is they're afraid to assume political responsibility because it would mean jeopardizing their economic and social status. No people in the world have more to say about the lack of free speech in Russia, China, Cuba, and Ghana. The reason is that as long as they have these other places to talk about, they can evade facing the silent police state that has grown up inside America. If you casually mention the police state to an American, the first thing he that comes to mind is some other country. He doesn't see his own police state. It's you know, striking to read those passages now in the wake of the ongoing Black Lives Matter movement in which it seems even more true. But I think this brings in the third component to uh, uh, Boggs' discussion that the intersection of race, class, and nation uh, in the sense that, you know, as he goes on to say, you know, uh, addressing this, the fundamental problem of our time, as he understands it, is that automation has cre is creating a surplus people. And uh, the only way to address that is to radically restructure society. As he goes on to say, there's no 
there's no capitalist solution to this problem. Um, uh, and there really is no state solution to this problem, even though there are some state attempts to, you know, address some of these issues through unemployment and so on and so forth, they're always going to be inadequate and partial because uh, the primary means of a capitalist society is, uh, is to constantly increase capital um, and there's no money to be made off of those who are expendable from society. So there's no capitalist solution. Um, but he also, I think in that last passage, suggests that in order for us to really address this, um, the only way to address it is to begin to maybe examine what we take for granted in our way of life and how in our way of life we benefit from exploitation and exclusion. Um, so that is uh, pretty much all I wanted to say about James Boggs. Um, I will... Uh, I will put down two discussion topics for our uh, discussion board from this from the book, um, and we will continue talking about automation when we uh, next week when we read selections from uh, James Smith and Aaron Ben Jason Smith, my own name, uh, and Aaron Ben and books. Okay, all right, talk to you then.